millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Second Chance Podcast. Just a quick word of warning. This episode deals with issues around mental health challenges that some listeners may find upsetting. Thomas Duncan Bell is my guest today and he's a truly inspiring mental health campaigner and public speaker. Growing up in an extremely volatile environment, Thomas has fought adversity and fear since he was old enough to remember it. He's battled drug and alcohol addictions and destructive relationships in the past and is now the primary mental health champion for the UK's Institute of Directors. Suffering from an extreme form of bipolar disorder, Thomas has successfully turned his life around in order to help other people. Known internationally as the bipolar businessman, Thomas has previously supported Princes William and Harry's Heads Together campaign, working with organisations to evoke change and end the stigma surrounding mental health in business. Thomas, sorry to keep you waiting. No worries, mate. No worries. Good to see your face, actually. Well, I see your face every day at the moment. I'm still binge-watching those... Uh, <laughs> still watching the prison stuff. Oh, uh, uh, well, well, thanks for watching. Um, have you found them interesting? I love that kind of thing, you know, listen, troubled childhood, dad going to prison, all that kind of jazz. I'm interested in the psychology behind uh, a lot of what you're delving into and what these guys go through. So I, I, I find, I've always found that type of thing quite interesting. Oh, right. Not been to prison yourself, I hope. No, no, no. I mean, I've been, I've had, had a night in a cell, let's say. But, you know, yeah, I think that was enough for me. As an, as an empathetic bloke, I was like, oh, my God, I never want to go back there again. So... What what brought you to the Netflix show then? Is it something that you're interested in or was it just something you chanced upon? I mean, I've always been interested in that type of thing. I like documentaries generally as opposed to, um, I mean, I like movies and things like that, but I love people like Louis Theroux and stuff like that. So I'm always interested in kind of unique insights into things. You know, I watch a lot of criminal stuff, you know, about, mass murderers and all this kind of thing and it's just like the psychology of i could easily be there right so that my mind is like one of those things where i could easily have gone that way if i hadn't taken a different path in life ultimately and so i guess maybe it's that's why i'm interested in the psychology why do people do that what do they change their stars in the end or are they still trapped in this narcissistic kind of mindset you know every human being has the ability to go one way or the other and I'm just, I think I'm just cognizant of the fact that my life could have easily led me to prison quite easily, you know, especially when I was younger, I was very volatile. Um, growing up in that environment, it's just automatic. It's ingrained in your body. And so, yeah, just kind of, I guess I'm grateful, but I'm on a constant journey of discovery to learn about how others think and operate. So, And that's why we're here talking we're not here to talk about my netflix show or crime and prison yeah i mean we're here to talk about 
about you, Thomas. And so let me start by asking you, you've titled yourself. I mean, I came across you because I've seen some of the emails you sent out, your LinkedIn profile, where you describe yourself as the bipolar businessman, which is quite a descriptive description of yourself. What What is the bipolar businessman? Who is the bipolar businessman? That's what we're going to get into. But let's start there. Why not? I mean, what is the bipolar businessman? The bipolar businessman was, you know, I, I, I live on the bipolar spectrum. I've got PTSD and I'm going through screening for autism and this kind of thing at the moment. So there's a, there's a lot of stigma surrounding mental health, um, especially mental health in business. And I found myself in a place, the irony of the bipolar businessman suggests that I'm a great businessman, right? Um, but maybe, I don't know. But I started speaking out about mental health in business in about 2015 when there wasn't anyone talking about it. There was probably five of us, let's say, in the UK who were willing to stand up and say, I've got mental health issues, but I'm working in the world of business. How do we create a more happy, healthy environment for people in work generally, which is where a lot of our over 50 percent of the UK's mental health is onset mental health illness issues because of our working environment and our day to day career choices. And that's massive. That means if you solve the problem within work, you've halved the issue in the UK, certainly in terms of onset mental ill health. 2015, I was not a very good businessman. I don't have any qualifications. I was thrust into the world of work when I was kicked out of drama school for having mental health issues (laughs) at 19. I wanted to be an actor. I got kicked out and I went to work as a telemarketer. And a number of years later, 10 years, sex, drugs, rock and roll, all the wrong decisions later, I decided that I wasn't doing very well. And I'd been through these moments of suicidal ideation. I'd been stood on busy train tracks at Guildford Station. I'd been into a police station after cutting my chest open with a combat knife trying to take my own life and not receiving support from police or those types of services at that time. And I wanted to help people to take a step back from the edge. I thought, you know, I I survived those moments and I thought, but it was the worst possible time in my life. I couldn't, I can't imagine being there at that level again. And I thought if I can speak up and talk about this and try and tell my story in some way, if it helps people to understand that they're not alone and it helps to stave them away from taking their own life. That was my primary goal, really. And I was sat in a networking group, 40 or 50 people. I wasn't making much money at the time because I wasn't enthused. I never wanted to be a businessman, as I said. I'd just kind of fallen into it. And I was running a, a lead gen company that I set up, a lead generation company, training people how to sell their products and services effectively. And someone from a charity called Oakleaf Enterprise in Guildford, which is my primary charity now, they do vocational training for for people with mental ill health from PTSD and and beyond. They stood up and said, listen, 19% of men will admit to having a mental health issue in the UK. And 2% of that 19 will put their name to it. And I looked around the room and I thought, you know, would any of these people be here if I was on that train track again, would they be there for me? Could I reach out to them? And the answer was no, fundamentally. And all I cared about at the time, I grew up in a very poor environment, like born on a council estate in Milton Keynes, this kind of thing. We didn't have much money when I was a kid. And so all I cared about was money and the vanity of what people thought of me, how I was perceived. You know, and I thought, well, actually, now here I am. All I care about is what people think and whether I've got money, etc., Um, because that's sustainability and that creates happiness, for example. That was what I felt at the time. But I thought I'm still sad and and no no one here would be there to help me. And and so I decided to set up a blog. I didn't know what a blog was. I thought it was for for crap journalists or crap writers who couldn't get a a book deal. Um, So I thought that's, that's basically what a blog is. So I thought I have no business writing a blog, but I looked it up online and apparently anyone can write a blog. So I found WordPress. I set up this blog, thebipolarbusinessman.com, and I wrote a blog about how I was feeling. And within about a week, my mum called me and she said, you know, I've just tried to join your blog that I saw online. And there's about 10,000 people. It says join 10,000 people reading Thomas's blog right now. 
And I thought, wow, you know, there's something in this. People are people are listening to what I've got to say. And I didn't really have anything to say other than I wanted to just rant about the problems I had and the day-to-day life issues and get it off my off my chest and out of my system. And at the time, it's not GDPR sensitive, um, but at the time I had a database of about 50,000 marketing contacts. And I thought, you know what? Who cares? What are you going to say? if I email you and tell you about my blog about mental health. So I just blanket bomb emailed these 50,000 people um, and just said, here, here's this blog about my mental health and how I'm feeling and this kind of thing. And a couple of vice presidents at Unilever picked it up and I was asked to write articles for Red Letter Days and Standard Life magazine and Building Societies Association. And, and it was picked up by the ex-global vice president of Unilever, a guy called Jeff McDonald. And he asked me to get involved with him setting up a charity called Minds at Work, which was effectively designed. It was kind of a round table of about 25 people, 30 people to kind of look at how is mental health perceived in business and how do we tackle mental health in business? And he's a specialist in the big businesses. And he wanted me to look at it from an SME perspective, a small to medium sized business perspective for individuals and entrepreneurs running the businesses. How do we help them with their mental health? And we got we got together and. And, and before long, the Institute of Directors, this 100-year-old organization, had adopted me as their primary keynote speaker and mental health commentator, and I was kind of off. I look like a cross between Harry Hill and Richard O'Brien, you know, so there was an amalgamation that kind of worked. And, uh, you know, my speeches are kind of a little bit Russell Brand club together with Dave Gorman's PowerPoints, you know. So I'm zany. I'm six foot three with a six foot five arm span. I'm bold with glasses. You know, I'm, I'm a guy you don't miss in a room and I'm usually wearing a three piece suit. So it was always people were kind of attracted to the energy. I didn't sit down and cry. You know, I put an eight minute video on where there's a few tears and it tells you the fundamentals of my story. And then I spend the rest of my hour or however long the speech is just talking to people about life and about my journey and what I've been through and how I've kind of changed my stars for the betterment of my own mental health, you know, and that caught on. And now I've had over a few million people see my story around the world through various medias and different things. And it's just a whirlwind. And for me, it's, it was never really about money. You know, I, I was in the mental health space in a time where I was paying out fortunes to travel around the UK and Europe to go to companies to talk about this stuff. And luckily I had a job at the time where I'd started to do well and I was um, I'm good at sales so I was making money but it cost me a fortune you know now people are paid a couple of grand for 20 minutes because I've had a mild brush with anxiety which is the kind of stuff that I combat now I, I I hate that this kind of capitalization of the kind of phenomena that is talking about mental health now you know I think people try capitalize on pain and try and line their pockets with it so I, I kind of I'm the outspoken guy who can't be controlled by a government, by a business or anyone. And and I just tell it how it is. And some people don't like it and some people do, but that's the way it is. It's just, it's just real. And ultimately my aim is if I can talk you off a ledger, I can change your life. That's what I want to do. And that all started with you being diagnosed with bipolar. And for, for, for my listeners who don't know what bipolar is, what is it? I mean, for, for you, talking about your own experience, what, what, what is bipolar? You know, if we see someone with a cut on their hand, we can see an injury. Mental health issues are a lot more complex. Bipolar is, is just one of those complexities. What does bipolar mean for somebody? I mean, what, what, what's the day-to-day existence of somebody who, who suffers from bipolar? I guess I would describe it as a series of manias, let's say. So we, we would say mainly is that kind of seems kind of extreme. But the way the way it was explained to me was that there is there is what's called the bipolar spectrum. And effectively, as human beings, we all have a level of anxiety, whether you're stressed because of work or you're stressed because you didn't get to your mother mother in law's in time for Sunday dinner or whatever. As far as I'm concerned, we're all on the same mental health spectrum. We're just at different levels of extremity. The bipolar spectrum effectively, um, for the most part, means that on any given day, you may be feeling a manic high where you can take over the world and everything's going right for you and you're going to make money and you're going to be happy and you're in a dreamland. And on the other side of the coin, you can barely bring yourself to get out of bed. 
You don't want to open up your laptop. You're lost. You hurt. You're sad and you don't understand why. And those are those. That's why they call it bipolar, right? Because they're polar opposites. You're on this this extreme high or you're on an extreme low. And there are varying degrees in between. And I was told initially that I had what's called an emotionally unstable personality disorder, which when you explain it to someone makes it seem like they're going to wake up with a horse's head in their bed or a bunny on the boil, right? Um, So that's concerning for me that it got that label. EUPD, they call it. But they said to me, you know, this had come through me trying to take my own life, seeking medical advice and saying, listen, I've got suicidal ideation. I want to die effectively, going to a doctor, being put on antidepressants, binning those antidepressants because by three in the afternoon, the drugs meant that I couldn't string a sentence together, which in a sales role means it's not conducive to making money. And then going to the hospital and saying, listen, I'm oppressively sad all the time and I don't want to live. Well, I do want to live. I feel like I've got something to give, but I'm just so sad and there seems to be no answer. What is this? And I went through a series of tests where they sit with you for four hours and ask you the same question 54 times worded in different ways, which when you've got a high IQ frustrates you somewhat because uh, you can see through that. But they expect you to answer all these questions in different ways based on these different tendencies. Right. So I went through these tests and and, and I was diagnosed as being on the bipolar spectrum. And, and I guess that, and that but that was around 20, 21 years old. Right. But finally, as much as it didn't solve all my problems, it just gave me a fundamental starting point. What does it mean to have an emotionally unstable personality disorder? Why? Why did this happen? You know, and then to start to understand. And when I kicked the um, when I kicked the antidepressants into the bin, I'd made a decision that most of what had happened to me in my life, the extremities of my of my youth and growing up in a volatile environment had created this beast and created this mental issue within me. And I thought there must be a way to remap my mind so that I'm happier. You know, happiness is a choice, not a destination, I would say now. You know, and that was my aim. It was how do I change my mental status by putting triggers in my mind to take me on a different journey if I get into those pits of despair. And that was where it began. And then 10 years later, sex, drugs, rock and roll later, I started the blog and started talking about it. And actually I started to change more rapidly by helping others save their own lives effectively. You mentioned that you were first diagnosed when you were 21 years old and and that's when you first understood what your issues were before then up until the age of 21 were there no signs of your personality changes you know this this desperation to 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 want to commit suicide or feeling very sad or at the other end as you say being extremely excited about life I mean what was it what was it like up until you were 21 where you hadn't been diagnosed were you just dismissed by society by relatives by friends as somebody who was just I don't know how they would describe it weird unstable I mean how was you treated by people and what did you think was going on up until the age of 21 when you were diagnosed this was in the years really when when you just pigeonholed a kid as a problem child so it was you know I grew up in an extremely volatile environment you know my mother and father were gay but they were in obviously an opposite sex marriage, right? In a time where you couldn't talk about being gay, it wasn't accepted in the way it is now. I think we've got 15 different genders now, something like that, right? So we're a much more accessible planet as human beings. And back then it wasn't really talked about. It was a stigma, it was a taboo in itself. And my mom was one of these individuals who was really quiet. And my dad was a martial arts instructor. He was in the Hells Angels. He was a member of the BNP. He was extremely volatile and aggressive. So they both exhibited their issues in different ways. So growing up in that environment, we went to school and my sisters were quiet, repressed individuals who just remained silent and put their head down and kind of got through. And I went to school and I was Jack the Lad, who was friends with everyone. And I was chatty and I was, you know... I had the banter and this kind of thing. And I just didn't, I had this mask of never wanting anyone to see what was going on behind the scenes. And 
I hated losing. I was reactive. I was volatile. I was emotionally unstable in a sense of crying extremely at things. The Lion King, for example, Mufasa dying, all this kind of stuff. You're right. I would be massively emotive for like movies and things versus extremely aggressive and volatile on the other side. I was always kind of a good kid. And I think, I think people all my life have seen me as a, just a good bloke who cares about people generally, Bec- probably because of what I've been through, I tend to kind of try and look after people probably to the detriment of my own health mentally and physically. But yeah, I think I was just pigeonholed as this kid on one level of extremity. He's just a naughty boy. He's just loud. You know, there's nothing for him. He's not going to fit in with schooling or how it's going to work in our society and this kind of thing. And so I was kind of struggling early days. My mum took me to swimming. I had a, I was chatting to a youth Olympic scout when I was about 12, 13, about going into the Olympic team as a swimmer, as a 100-meter swimmer. And my parents split up around that time and I jacked swimming in, even though I had a good opportunity to to be kicking Michael Phelps to the, to the curb, which never happened, unfortunately, maybe, maybe one day. But um, yeah, and I I was bullied by some of the teachers at my, my first primary school. They would bully and abuse me in the classroom. And so my mum had to pull me out of one school to put me in another one where I was really happy. I had an aunt who died and left us some money. So for two years before my parents split, they put me into a private school called Berry Lawn in Milton Keynes. And they, we didn't have any business being there. You know, I was council house kids, <laughs> you know, it's all these posh, like Japanese businessmen and Indian businessmen and all this kind of thing, all their kids in the blazers with the briefcases. But I was the happiest I'd ever been. And that was the only place in my life where I felt okay. They explored the extremities of my lariness. They taught me how to act. They taught me how to creatively write you know, and they explored who I was as an individual on a, on a one-to-one level. And but you what, still hadn't at this point been diagnosed with any mental health issues. It was just more about your personality and character that they were working with. I mean, they were obviously in tune to the fact that, that you were slightly different, let's say, to, yeah. to other kids, maybe, yeah. but you hadn't been diagnosed at this point with any mental health issue. With With nothing. I mean, we didn't, this was, I guess, I didn't have any cognizance at the time of, of who knew what, right? I didn't know whether the teachers knew what was going on at home, whether they knew we were abused. I mean, every door in my house was smashed up. I couldn't bring friends home because my dad at one point was arrested for mucking about with rent boys effectively in London, you know, so my mum wouldn't let me bring any friends home, you know, so I couldn't have friends at the house and this kind of thing. And it was so smashed up anyway. So I didn't have any awareness of whether anybody knew what was going on. And my mum was a special needs teacher. And I think she, I love her to pieces, but I think she just didn't really want to accept that perhaps I needed some kind of additional support in different ways. It was kind of like, get your head down. She would help me at home as much as she could. And then I'd have to go through the schooling like everyone else. But there was no support mechanism within school if the teachers weren't attuned to me to actually kind of help me achieve or or to fit in with the protocol let's say so there was just there wasn't really anything and even 10 years ago you know even even back in the day when I was trying to take my own life or going to the NHS to try and get help or going to the police station to try and get help I mean I, I remember one night I went to a police station I'd cut my chest open wanted to take my own life I was bleeding I went to a police station in Guildford at three in the morning and they said, look, we can do two things like, you know, you can call a friend or we can put you in a cell for a night. Like, I was like, can't you get someone to help me? Is there someone I can talk to, a psychologist, someone? I don't know what's wrong with me, why I'm so sad, why I want to take my own life. Had no money at the time, um, had never really taken any drugs, but I just wanted alcohol so that I could drink and fall asleep because I knew the next day it might be better. You know, as a kid, my coping mechanism was just to fall asleep. I could sleep through anything. Police sirens, you name it outside. I could sleep through anything because of that extreme environment where my dad was smashing things up. I would hibernate and that was how I would get. And then when I woke up, it wasn't happening anymore. So that was the mechanism that triggered me. 
And that's what led to later more extreme drinking or drug taking and this kind of thing as, as a means of kind of trying to combat that. But there wasn't a system in place, you know, and standing there at three o'clock in the morning, I was like, well, I can't call my friends and tell them, sorry, I'm extremely depressed. I didn't even know the word depressed, really. I didn't know why. I was just so, so sad. And I didn't know why. And I thought, I can't call my friends. So they just sent me into the street. That was it. Do you make the connection then between what was happening at home when you were a child and what you were eventually diagnosed with bipolar? I mean, is there a connection or is bipolar now that you have much more of an insight? Is it something that is that develops naturally in the brain or, or is it because of what you say you experienced at home, you know, your father, your parents having this pressed upbringing? Do you think there is a connection between the two? Yeah, I think it's a culmination of. So I think you look at people look at bipolar and think of someone like Stephen Fry, where they're one extreme or the other and that's it. But there's such a range. And so to have an emotionally unstable personality disorder and to kind of be on this spectrum, I, it was explained to me by the doctor at the time I was diagnosed that because of the volatility of my environment and because of the way my parents operated with me and how I was brought up, that that's what exacerbated this specific issue. I hadn't learnt the protocols of how to deal with human relationships, society, how to interact with people, what give and take is. You know, 20 years ago, I couldn't understand that in a conversation you wanted to know about how Raphael was doing or what his life was about. Now I have a thirst to learn everything about other people. But before it would have been an hour of talking about me. Now people want to talk about me and I'm challenged by that because I've ta- it's taken me years to get to the point where I can have a back and forth conversation because I just didn't really understand. And I didn't have any guidance and I didn't have kind of a solid male role model in my life ever until much later to sort of stabilize me. And I've done a lot of research since, you know, and I, I run mental health courses and all sorts of stuff. And 95% of our daily habits or how, or our, our daily instincts come uh, and are developed in the first seven years of our life, 95%. So it would take a lifetime to change that ingrained instinctual stuff. It will take me a lifetime and I'll never change everything. I can only evolve to become better. But if that first seven years is volatile and and, and all over the place, then most people don't have much of a shot of changing their stars for the most part. You said you were able to do that by remapping your mind or the way that you think what 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 tools, what mechanisms, what skills did you have to go out there to relearn or, or, or build on in order for you to to control your condition um, and manage your condition? And and I don't know whether you're still at that position or whether you know medication was the only answer. How how were you able to rethink the way you think? I guess um, initially it came with so they gave me antidepressants when I was first diagnosed and I had the suicidal ideation I was stood on these train tracks and this kind of stuff and I after about a month like I said I I couldn't string a sentence together after 3 p.m in the afternoon so I decided I was going to stop the medication and that's when this kind of concept of remapping my mind came about and initially it was small things so if I was feeling anxious in the morning it was walking to work in a different way so I went through a park so I'd see the trees so I'd smell the flowers I'd listen to certain music that I knew would motivate me the karate kids Joe Espinosa the karate kids you're the best around still what that's still my alarm every morning right and it's just certain things I attribute to I was like you know 80s 90s kid these movies my father during that time was Robin Williams you know, I would become obsessed with film um, and these kind of things. And all of the good things about me now, most of the caring human being, the compassionate human being I am now come from and have been learned through watching the films of people like Robin Williams and these kind of guys where they were good fathers. I mean, Goodwill Hunting is a nightmare for me to watch, but it's certainly kind of really one of those movies that catapulted my mind into a sense of change 
from abuse to you know to, to healing and, and was there was there somebody involved in helping you manage that process because it sounds like you found the mechanism that worked for you or or is it you know just for other people who may be going through similar situations was it a combination of the two or is it you know you dumped the medication and decided that this is what worked for you or was there somebody standing behind you Thomas saying go in this direction go in that direction that will help maybe somebody who had bipolar themselves who who kind of shared with you their own experience I mean who carried you on this journey was it a lonely journey or was you being supported no to be honest it was it was quite a lonely journey you know I come from a family where you don't talk about your problems your relationship for the most part is about whether the sun's shining and the birds are singing it's not really you know I talk a bit with my sisters now but my mum said to me very early days you know I'm, I'm your mum I'm not your friend you know it's not about and and that sounds that sounds harsh, right? I love her. She loves me more than anything. But she has a very specific, you know, my parents were brought up in a time where there was a specific structure, you know, post-war generation, this kind of thing. And our families weren't the way that they are now, where they're more interactive, you know. And so I didn't really have, my mum was always kind of like stiff upper lip, keep going, you know, this kind of typical British mentality. And that challenged me because I wanted more from life than that. So it was a very lonely journey for about 10 years. And that's why I experienced extremes of drug addiction, sex addiction, binge drinking, partying, all sorts of stuff before I got to the point where I made it through the woods, so to speak, because I just didn't have any kind of guidance it was always just about cracking on and faking it until you make it effectively which isn't isn't so the way was, to go what was the pivotal point thomas what was the pivotal point i mean if i if think where, where it really changed Raphael, to be honest is when i took a step back and i thought you know all i really care about is what people think about me and about money and money because we didn't have any when i was a kid and i thought that meant sustainability and happiness like i said earlier on so i decided that money was irrelevant I didn't care about money. I just wanted to be happy. And I didn't really care about what people thought of me. And so I started talking about mental health and things like that. But the fundamental shift happened when I stopped drinking. I'm over 800 days teetotal now, and I'll never drink again. You know, I just don't care. If I, dr- if I had a sip of beer now, I, my body just doesn't want it. It tastes like a toxin. It is a toxin. Um, I stopped drinking. Uh, I went plant-based. So I started learning about nutrition. What is it that I put in my body that makes my mind work better? And I read a study on um, on what veganism is. And it said, you know, it was talking about cows and pigs and being sentient beings. And when they're killed, um, they release anxiety hormones and endorphins that's then trapped in the meat as it's processed. And we consume that through our local supermarkets. And so if you're already on a level of extreme mental ill health and then you're ingesting more hormones that have anxiety in them, then I, you know, I thought, well, I don't need any of that in my life. So I stopped eating beef. I stopped eating pork. I stopped dairy. And immediately my energy levels changed. I was happier. I was more energetic. Fast forward, I stopped drinking. I took on some physical challenges. So I decided 10 days into like a 28 day alcohol free challenge that I would do a Spartan race. Um, You may have heard of Tough Mudder who are also owned by Spartan. So it's like an obstacle course race. It's jumping over 10 foot walls. It's crawling under barbed wire, mud, all sorts of stuff. And within about actually in my first Spartan race, 10 days after drinking, I was 34 at the time thinking I've done 10 years of sex, drugs, alcohol, all this kind of stuff. My body's wrecked. Footballers retire at 34 at peak physical fitness. What have I got left? And I went and did my first Spartan race and I was a hundredth of a second off qualifying for the the obstacle course race world championships. And immediately something snapped in my head. The guy who invented Spartan is a guy called Joe DeSena. And his mindset is that you choose your discomfort so that you may better manage the discomfort that life throws at you because inevitably life is going to kick you regardless. You know, you may have had a perfect start, still going to kick you in the guts as you go. You're always going to face anxiety. So why don't I choose my anxiety and learn how to live in that discomfort 
so that I be- may better manage. So I stopped drinking. I learned nutrition. I learned how to get fit. And I learned how to be present. So I was rushing everything in life. I've always wanted to rush everything. And I learned that when you go for a walk, it's not just about going for a walk for an hour or a run and getting home. It's about looking around, smelling where you are, feeling it. And I wanted to feel like I was attuned to my surroundings. And those four pillars, the drinking, the fitness, the nutrition, and and trying to be mindful and just to take a step back and stop every now and then, that was what really changed the state of play for me forever. And that's now what I try and change in other people. Yeah, I mean, and that's what I'm finding quite incredible as you share your story, Thomas, that the thing that keeps kind of kerning around in my mind is where you find this mental strength, you know, given that you have been diagnosed with bipolar and you have this mental health issue, you've still found space in your being, yourself, to overcome not just your mental health condition, but also to change your life in a way that your condition, people may think, would make it even harder for you to have this resilience and this determination to give up drinking, give up drugs, go on to do these kind of, um, you know, muscle man, Spartan things. I mean, where does someone in your mental health spectrum find the strength of character to do that? Because there are lots of people out there who, who want to get up but can't get up. They're looking for that determination, but because of the condition that they may be suffering, they can't find that strength. Where did you find that strength? To be honest, I should be dead. Sometimes I sit here and I feel like, sort of welling up talking about it but sometimes I sit here and think you know it's a miracle I'm here with no tools to to get to where I am now and I think when I look at the Spartan racing and the extreme endurance stuff that I do now I look back at my life I was in my first bar fight at 14 I had my first fist fight with my father when I was 13 years old I saw my first strip I have sex with someone in front of me in a biker club when I was about 14 15 you know, I've been in these extreme environments and dealing with extreme situations all my life. And when you grow up with that level of volatility, you kind of realize that for me, I have like this almost a feeling of invincibility. It's like, if you aren't going to kill me, you can't stop me. You cannot stop me because after everything I've been through, I'm not going to go now. Like when I stand on the start line at a Spartan race and the nerves creep in and things like that, I already know I'm at the end. You know, it's that it's I've cultivated a mindset that says it doesn't matter how much I was abused. That just makes me hard. And actually, the fact that I'm still here after all these years of suffering, 17 years on since I left home, whatever, it's that that's kind of galvanized in me over time. And then it's become about supporting other people and saying, do you know what, actually, I took all of that abuse and I took all of that, but my son doesn't have to. My friends don't have to. And I'm willing to take that on the chin and I'll suffer more abuse if necessary so that other people don't have to. And I guess it was just that want to save people and to change the world in some way to leave my mark, to leave my dent. Uh, I never wanted to be one of these kind of vanity thought leaders who gets online and leaves a little video every day of how to motivate yourself and all this kind of rubbish so they get more Instagram likes and all this kind of stuff. I just don't want people to be sad. And if you think that I'm weak because I care about people, you're wrong. And if you think I'm wet because I don't drink or I eat plants, then I'll see you on a Spartan trail and we'll see who the real man is. You know, that's my mindset now. And it's not easy to do that. It's not easy to get out of bed. I work with guys all the time. I'm involved in a charity as a trustee called Mangang. And we do free online like talks. And it's not loads of counsellors or anything. It's just a bunch of blokes. Some people have had, some people have got cancer. Some people have had PTSD or family members died and all this kind of stuff. Um, and, and another group I'm involved with called Strong Men, it's a similar sort of thing. And and we come together and we talk about the day-to-day issues, but you're not encouraged as a guy to be vulnerable. 
and you certainly weren't when I was growing up. And same for you, I guess. You know, we're not we're not taught, especially in the UK, with this stiff up stiff upper lip mentality. You're not taught to be vulnerable. And even now, mental health is so commercialized, it makes it even more difficult to be vulnerable. And I think that the first step for anyone at their lowest ebb is to talk about it. You know, call the Samaritans. When, when you when you were when you were at your lowest ebb, sorry to interrupt. No, no, please. When you were at your lowest ebb, you attempted to take your life. Was that triggered by something or was this part of your mental health you know, condition where you were at the bottom end of your spectrum and feeling very sad and very low that that triggered you to say, I need to end my life? Or was there a, a, a connecting incident, in, you know, I don't know, breaking up of a girlfriend, um, losing a job, not having any money? Is there a trigger that drives you over that line? Yeah, I think for me at the time, I was, you know, I was young, I was extremely volatile. If you bump into me in a club, then I'll offer you outside for a, you know, for a dance in the street and see who wins. You know, it was that kind of thing. I was extremely aggressive. I needed to prove that I was tough. I was a bloke, this kind of thing. And I didn't know why. Um, but actually, it was at the time, it was an extremely volatile relationship where she had some issues of herself, herself and she was suffering from anorexia and bulimia and these kind of things which now i know years on is is another level like 17 years on is another level of mental ill health and i didn't know then so we're experiencing together these extremes of volatility and at the time my father passed away in 2007 due to some issues in hospital where some checks weren't done he was moved from one site to another site and an ulcer burst in his body and poisoned him so there was an inquest and a doctor and a couple of nurses were fired and this kind of thing. And I'd never had chance really to move beyond our relationship early days. So I'd never had chance to kind of get the posterity of dealing with those issues with my father or understand. I didn't even know he was gay or anything like this until after he had died. He killed my dog. He shot my dog in the back of the head, told me that like he gave it to another family or whatever all these kind of things didn't even know these kind of things until after he died. So then there's all these things that come out after the death of my father that then spiraled into this extreme. And I was volatile in this relationship and I was attacked by my girlfriend at one point and I hit her and it was like uh, something broke in my mind at that point where I just was like, you've just gone full circle and become your father, the guy that you never wanted to be the guy that you always tried not to be like. That was when it all changed for me. That was when I was went to that extreme, wanted to take my own life, and then began this process of change. And it was horrible. It, 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 it was awful, but it was it, that's what sent me to that level. And ultimately, as human beings, there are trigger points throughout our life at any stage that can send us one way or the other. But I could have easily been in that moment, lost myself, and then gone on to be an abuser of women for the rest of my life, or a drug addict, or an alcoholic, or whatever it was. But something within me shifted and wanted a change for the better, and I just clung on as hard as I could. I didn't want to be stood on a train track. I didn't want to die. I just wanted someone to care. And no one really cared about what was actually going on with me. That's what it felt like. My family were kind of stiff up a lip, like crack on and go and get a job. It'll be fine. You can hate your job for the next 60 years. That's what you do. That's how life works. But I wasn't willing to accept that. I wanted to find something that made me happy. I wanted to be happy. And, and do I you think you are now? I mean, thankfully, you, you did find that inner strength to to turn and and head down an, another path that's my way of kind of saying well done for finding another route finding another journey you know eating plants as you say and and finding another way you know being strong through the physical activities that you you do so so where are you at now i mean your condition i mean do you still does somebody who has bipolar even with the efforts you've made to control your behaviors or your anxieties that takes you up and down 
do, do you still face the challenges in the same way you did previously or are they a lot more milder now? I mean, where are you at at this point in your life? I think, listen, I'm still on a journey. I'm probably, I would say, the, the, the real rehabilitation, despite years of trying, the real re- rehabilitation started probably 2015. So let's say I'm six, seven years into what I would classify as my rehabilitation. I don't think I will ever rid myself of the darkness that I suffer. But I've seen enough change through the paths that I've taken that I know I, I, in moments of suicidal ideation, where you just wish the lights were out, you just wish you, you go to sleep and never wake up, I know that I won't do that. I know that I don't want to take my own life. I have a three and a half year old son. My focus is that he never has to even see any element of what I saw when I was growing up. We're never going to physically fight each other. I'm never going to take him to a strip club. I'm going to teach him that it's okay to be emotive, that it's okay to care about people, but I'm going to put him through those Spartan trainings, the discomfort, the endurance and things that I faced and give him all the tools that he needs to be a normal human being. I'm not going to send him to school. I'm taking him around the world. I don't have any qualifications. I've got six businesses. You don't need qualifications. You need to understand how to be a good human being and how to be dynamic and adaptable ultimately. So my focus will be seven or eight years old. We get in a camper van with my wife and we go around the world and you learn about the Romans standing in a Colosseum. You learn about elephants while we're in Africa on the plains. But that is how you evolve. And around that journey, he will work with charities, he will work with kids, and he will become a well-rounded human being. And that is how I drive myself forwards to change the state of play. You, You can't rid yourself of it, but you can teach yourself to consult you in those moments. Someone said to me once, 72 year old guy with cancer said to me, Thomas, in those moments of extreme anger or anxiety, to start with, you have to understand when you've been through it. Then you have to understand how to capture yourself in the moment. Then you have to start thinking about it before the moment happens when you see the anxiety rise. And then you learn how to navigate around it. And so that's the process now for me. It's when I see myself getting into a state of anxiety, I try and shift the balance. And only by consuming knowledge and learning about other people and helping other people and seeing their problems and being empathetic, can you consume enough information that you can change your state of play in a moment so that you don't take that knife and stab that person in the street? So you make a conscious decision to go and take a different path. And so that is my aim. I know that I won't ever get over it. That's just the way that one went. I'm never going to have the family unit that I wanted. I can't force that upon my mum, my sisters, this kind of thing. It just is what it is, you know. But I can change how I react to things that affect me negatively. And part of that journey now is trying to educate I don't know inform business leaders in in that realm you you know I know that you're um, one of the health champions at the UK's Institute of Directors I mean what does that mean does that involve you standing up in front of you know company leaders managing directors CEOs who given the responsibilities that they have as leaders of corporations, small businesses, big businesses, that they must have serious anxieties in some shape or form. Some of them relish it and thrive on it. Maybe they use cocaine to keep them going. I don't know. But what do you do to help those or, or advise those? Or or is it just a matter of you sharing your own journey experience as a businessman? For, for, for the first sort of five years or so before I started my company, which is called My Whole Self, I just wanted to be a keynote speaker. I just wanted to share my story, try and save some lives. And I worked with Princes William and Harry for the Heads Together campaign. And I worked with their sponsors and things like that to talk at various companies. And I've spoken in the HSBC offices and I'm talking to Tesco's and all all sorts of different types of companies about my journey. And we're sharing content and things. But 
um, last year at the start of the pandemic, I decided to take a step back and everybody's been saying to me, listen, you need to start a mental health company. You can't just be this guy who pays his way to get around to tell his story to change some lives. You've got to do this. And I didn't want to capitalize on how well known I was. I didn't, I felt disingenuous taking money from companies because I was like, I'm just a bloke like who's sad, <laughs> extremely sad. <laughs> you know, I just want to help people not be sad. And I felt disingenuous taking money to share my story. People are willing now to give me £8,000 for an hour to, to just go and tell my story for an hour, which I'll just take and give to my charity because it will go and save 400 people's lives, right? I don't care about that. But it's it's mad, right? So people do, people capitalize on that now. But what I've done is I've created a company whereby we go in, we do an assessment of the organization and what they're doing um, and how that looks against global best practice for mental health. How do you implement well-being and change programs to support staff's mental well-being? Uh, my co-founder at uh, My Whole Self is is called Petra Velzebur. She's got an amazing story herself. She was born into a cult and all sorts of stuff. And she's a clinical psychologist. So together we initially worked on, I wrote, I spent 200 hours writing a 90-day change program called change your life in 90 days and it's a bite-sized chunks day by day content delivered to you as an individual that takes you through a 90-day program to stop drinking learn about nutrition learn about fitness and be more mindful and that was where it started for me and in a couple of months we'll be launching an app and the aim of the app really is that let's say someone like tesco's comes along and they say okay we want our staff to be more mentally healthy. We give them the app for a small fee and all of their staff get that app for free. So I think Tesco's in the UK, 325,000 people. So my focus was how do I get to all those people immediately, get Tesco's to support me, give them this app cost effectively, and then they give it to all their staff. And what this app will do is there are lots of clinical apps out there. You click if you're happy, you click if you're sad, all this kind of stuff. I found that quite patronizing. You know, so that's not for me. There's a silent majority of people like myself who just want to help themselves through the darkness, who want the tools to do it themselves. They don't necessarily want to go and seek help. Maybe they're internal individuals. They don't want to speak out or be a keynote speaker or whatever. Well, they don't want to talk to a doctor, but they feel sad. And effectively, what I've done is I've split the app into six sections that I feel are the, the, the kind of primary pillars of well-being. So that's your your physical, your social, your career, your financial, your community, and your emotional well-being. And the aim of the app really is for you to, to answer some questions, about 10 questions on each section, to give you kind of a score to let you know where you stand within those sections. So you know which are your weakest areas. Is it your relationships? Is it that you're not very fit? What is it? You, you're not managing your money properly. And then I partner with people to bring in curated content that helps you to evolve in those areas. So let's say you're bad with finances and it always makes you sad because you never have any money. You're always in a deficit. I bring in HSBC and I say, OK, guys, can you help us with some financial planning stuff so that someone can access my app, get this free financial planning information and then they can write i earn sixteen thousand pounds a year this is my rent and things and we train people how to do those things via the app so they've got free tools that are at their fingertips coupled with inspiring stories 24 7 support from samaritans and people like that so in your lowest hour anytime day or night you can call someone and talk to them you know and that's the aim it's a, it's an application really that's designed to be more human and give people the tools to change their life themselves and that's that's kind of really that's really exciting um it does sound like a really exciting prospect actually and if it's filling a void that doesn't exist that that makes it all the more powerful and i wish you all, all the luck with that and i'm sure people will find it useful when it's fully up and running it'd be great if if these big corporates can get involved um for for, for the benefit of their staff two more questions from me the first one is I know very little about, you know, mental health issues, campaigning and stuff. It's not the space that I generally work in, despite the fact 
99.9% of the people that I generally meet and talk to have a mental health issue. And it might be because they're in prison. It might be because of their upbringing, et cetera, et cetera. But where do you think we are as a society, not just here in the UK, but globally, because I suspect your work takes you beyond the shores of the UK, even if it's just by Zoom at the moment. But where do you think we are as a society in terms of embracing? You say, you know, people have capitalized on mental health issues and they've gone, you know, commercialized it in a sense where it's become, for some people, financially beneficial. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, if you can share your experience to change someone else and be paid for that, I don't see that being a problem um, if it's helping you, especially if you can't get a job because of your mental health issues. And so doing that is one way of, of securing an income. But where do you think we are, Thomas, uh, as a society in terms of accepting that if we have bipolar, anxiety, other illnesses, schizophrenia, whatever that mental health issue might be at whatever level, do you think we have embraced it? People are talking more openly about their conditions, corporations, businesses, individuals, etc. Yeah, I think one of the biggest challenges is, listen, pharma companies don't make money if they aren't throwing out prescription medication, right? So antidepressants and this kind of thing, especially in countries like America, they throw them out like Smarties, right? They'll take a kid who's nine years old and because they're a bit all over the place, rather than put them into a martial arts class, they'll give them a bunch of drugs, dope them up. You know, it's not the mindset that we need. There's two fundamental problems that we've got at the moment. Um, one of the biggest ones is is reactivity. So it's social media and consumption of mainstream media. Just crap, crap on crap on crap. And this is one of the biggest issues that we have, right? People are glued to their phones, their social media. We've forgotten what it is to be human and to have conversations and interact Okay, and it's difficult in a pandemic as well, right? So it's exacerbated the problem. Mass consumption of designer goods that were made for six pound and sold for six hundred. This is the issue, right? It's we we're brought up in this society where you have to have a bigger house, a bigger car, you know, you have to have more money. If you don't earn a million quid, then you're worthless. If you don't get a record deal from Simon Cowell, then you're rubbish. It's this kind of concept, it's this capitalist dream turn nightmare unfortunately so there's this consumerist issue and corporations like you've got the mcdonald's and all these these kind of companies right who are just feeding off this mass consumption model so that's one of the biggest issues is making us reactive as a society so for those who feel that they're reactive in their life i'd say don't use your phone for the first hour of every day don't use your phone for the last hour of every day because the endorphins that are, that are released by checking how many likes you've got or by liking media and this kind of thing are then linked to, to that forever and it makes you reactive aggressive with your kids aggressive with your family you're not focused on the real things if you go out for a walk with your kid first thing in the morning those endorphins that are released in your mind biologically and scientifically are more valuable to you so that's that's one of the biggest issues in terms of the reactivity the other issue is in schools right so we're teaching people how to learn we're teaching people how to pass exams we're not teaching people how to be human beings you know, we've got physical education, but we don't have any mental education and life skills. And nine times out of 10, the onset mental health issues that come about in life are because we don't fully understand how to operate. We're not taught how to manage finance at school. We're not taught how to understand that it's OK to be sad or how to look after Tom if he's upset, you know, or how to deal with that. So no one learns those skills as a kid. And if we were teaching you how to be more more of an empathetic human being, how it's okay to care, and actually compassion is is a strength, not a weakness. If we don't embed those into the core of our, you know, kind of education system, we're stuffed ultimately. And so for me, that's a massive factor in terms of the change that we need to implement. And if they don't start classes like that at a primary through secondary level people will not be able to manage with the extreme of how technology is going. It's just going to become a more and more consumer-based reactive society, and it's just going to implode. What does the theme of this podcast is about second chance, and that comes in all different shapes and sizes. Does second chance mean anything to you? I was kind of given a second chance, really. When I started sharing my story, there are a number of people who gave me a shot, right, in – in a posh man's world where you, you know, I should never have been rubbing shoulders with certain individuals. 
because of where I was born and where I grew up, there were some people who gave me an opportunity to speak out and to share my story. And so, yeah, it means it means a lot to me, those people that were around during that time, specifically people like Jeff McDonald, who was this, he was the global VP of HR at Unilever. He had run their mental health change programs and things. And he championed me. He was the guy that big business people, the CEOs of the biggest companies in the UK and even the, the government looked to him for advice. And, and those types of people, uh, along with, you know, my, my investors, uh, Simon, Simon Berger and Mark Pigu, who run the biggest mental health summit in Europe called Mad World Summit, those guys invested in me. And they said, Thomas, we, it's okay to earn money doing something good. You shouldn't have to, because you're a clever commercial guy and you could be a great businessman, you shouldn't have to feel guilty for that, but use it to turn it into something good. And they said, we only invest in disruptive people and we only invest in things that are going to make people happier. And those kind of three individuals, I would say, as primaries, invested time and energy into me and money into me to help champion a more human approach to changing people's lives and so i don't have to sacrifice my morals i don't have to sacrifice my ethics and i can be who i am without taking away the swearing when i do a keynote speech without being pigeonholed into this kind of politically correct box i can do as i wish to change people's lives and it's so you can get a second chance if you're hard-headed enough and you, you crack on but it that sometimes it just takes a few good eggs to back you up along the way. I, I second that. And I, 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 I don't know if you know this, but I, I interviewed Jeff McDonald uh, many years ago, actually, when I was a reporter on The One Show on, on, on the BBC. And, and at the time, people like Rio Ferdinand and others were, were so, sort of talking about their own mental health issues. So you had all these celebrities kind of being rolled out on television, but they weren't kind of exploring the business world. And I was introduced to Jeff uh, and I managed to get a piece on the one show with him talking about the struggles and the strains and the anxieties that people in the business community are also suffering and challenging, especially those at such high levels as as Jeff. So I know, Jeff, listen, Thomas, it's been fascinating talking to you and getting an insight into your world. Just before we go, one question, because at the very beginning, you sort of said one of the, the, the biggest challenges for you was was you know, getting, breaking free of the sadness. Are you, and this might seem like a trivial question, but it's an important question to me to ask. And I think you've already kind of alluded to the fact that, you know, you're now married and you have a son and you have a purpose in in teaching your son something that you were never taught. Are you happy? I think I have all the tools necessary to find happiness more often than I'm sad now. And I, it comes because what I realized is that, yes, I had to suffer a lot of darkness, but now I get to be the father that I never had. And would my son have the life that he's going to have if I hadn't been through all of that turmoil? Probably not. So I think, you know, if if that's what I had to go through to ensure that he's got the future that I wanted, then I'll, I'll take that on the chin. So I would say I'm pretty happy with that. Brilliant. I'm going to pause. Thank you so much, Thomas, for sharing your story with me and my listeners today. No worries, Raphael. I appreciate the time. Thank you very much for having me on. I don't know about you, but I found listening to Thomas very insightful and a stark reminder that we can all benefit from sharing our experiences. I suspect the majority of us sitting in front of a doctor would be diagnosed with some form of mental health issue, especially in the last few years. Depression, anxiety, stress, these and many other emotions govern our day-to-day existence. For some like Thomas, it can be extremely difficult, but not insurmountable with help and understanding. For further information and details of organisations that can assist those experiencing mental health issues, go to the links in the description of this episode. Thanks for listening. And if you haven't already, please subscribe, share and follow us on social media at A Reporter on Instagram and Twitter or Second Chance by Raphael Rowe on Facebook. This is an independent podcast and we rely on your support to keep it going. 
If you would like to donate or sponsor this show, please get in touch via email or the Raphael Rowe website. This helps us keep the podcast moving forward. If you think you know someone with something to share on the podcast, please get in touch via social media, email or any other means you have to make contact. Audio editing is by Audio Avalanche. The original music is by J-Row Productions. The cover design work is by Studio Minerva. And this episode was produced by Daryl Johnson, Sophie Warner and me, your host, Raphael Rowe. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.